You're going to miss the statistics, though, kids. I don't know why I think from time to time that statistics of any kind are a good way to hook you for a sermon. Like, I usually try to use some kind of interesting illustration, a story, a fact that blows your mind to grab your attention and pull you in. And then once in a while, I'm like, you know, uh, 41% of... Deep down, I know that most people find that very boring. And yet this morning, here I am telling you about Barna's recent The Bible in America study and how it found that 87% of the people in our churches wanted to be taught how to read the Bible more effectively and that 62% of people in the communities surrounding our churches wanted to read the Bible more. And on one level, that's very encouraging. I would have thought that that number would have been much lower, that, that more than half of Americans would have thought, I don't need the Bible, who cares? And yet, there those numbers are. But there's always the cynical kind of uh, dark cloud to every silver lining. And it, it, first off, I wonder about those 87% who said, yes, I want to be taught how to better understand the Bible if they're attending their church's Bible studies and Bible classes, or if they're just sitting at home going, gosh, I wish someone would just show up out of the vapor and teach me how to uh, understand the Bible more. And even though 62% of people in these communities say that they want to read the Bible more, the trend is pretty significantly that Bible reading is down. In fact, it's down 20% over the last generation, which is about 1% per year, which is a really, really bad direction for that sort of thing to go. And this is happening in and outside of the church. And that is scary. And that is a, a real, I think, alarm bell for the confessing church of Jesus Christ to stop and say, we need to turn that around, at least within our family, our faith community. Because this is the primary means of grace for us. Now, in the, the ordinances, the sacraments, the waters of baptism, this bread, this cup, we do encounter Christ himself. And these things, ordained by Jesus, are powerful. And I mean that in the original sense. They're full of power. But they happen some places weekly, others monthly, with baptism only once. For our daily feeding and strengthening in grace... The Reformers also talked about ordinary means of grace. These are things that happen over and over again. And reading God's Word is the principal channel of God's sanctifying grace to us as Christians, just as it's the principal channel of God's initial saving grace to the unbeliever. When we encounter Him in these pages, He, he changes us and makes us more like Him. He empowers us and emboldens us to follow him more closely, and he refines us to live holier lives. And so it's no surprise that in 1 Timothy 4.13, writing to his protege Paul, he says to him, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Not just get out there and preach, but first on the list, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Some time ago, we decided to add more reading of Scripture to our service. And I think it was a good move. We added a second reading. We also, for a while, for a couple of years, added a psalm at the beginning. And then we changed that to now a uh, responsive reading, which is usually like it was this morning, a responsive reading of Scripture itself. And that is a good move. 
Because a Christian church will be shallow without devoting itself to the public reading of Scripture. And an individual Christian will have a shallow spiritual life without devoting him or herself to the private reading of Scripture. When we sing this morning, speak, O Lord, and we do, we want God to speak to us. But if we're listening, it means we're opening these pages. I think a lot of people say, God, speak to me. Just tell me what you want me to do. God, just, just speak to me so that I know that you're there. And we're hoping that he'll audibly just you know, make the exception for me because I'm me and I breathe air and all that amazing stuff and say, here I am. Here I am, Zach. He's already spoken. Now, in a sense, is God still speaking? Yes, he's speaking to us through his spirit. He's leading us. He's guiding us. But this, his word, is finished. And here it sits for us. And it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is not just words on a page. It is life. It is our, our rations. It is our light so that we can see where we are going. And if all of that is true, and we believe it is, we need to be reading it and being fed by it. And some might say, how though? How do I do that? Sure, Pastor, you, you, know, you had a decade of higher education studying this stuff, but I didn't. My education was in computers or pharmacology or auto repair or something else. And just like you don't know my stuff, I don't read this and go, okay, I know the Greek and the Hebrew behind it, or here's a chiasm or synthetic parallelism. And so sometimes it's difficult to take it and be fed by it. Sometimes... I read the Bible just because I'm supposed to read it, and it's just so many words stacked together, and it actually doesn't seem to have any connection with my life at all, and that's frustrating. And here's a secret. Sometimes that happens to me, too. But I've got good news for you. That God's Word is not just for theologians or pastors or so-called experts. In fact, a ton of education can get in the way of engaging God's Word just as often as it helps enlighten the meaning behind it. Who were Jesus' uh, enemies, his opponents throughout his ministry? The Pharisees and the experts in the law. They, they had, in fact, remember when, when Paul was told, your great learning has driven you crazy. Learning so much about the Bible can make someone start to think that they sit over it rather than it over them. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus, the great famous Nicodemus, and Jesus said to him, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? How then can I speak to you of heavenly things? And sometimes he would come across people who were the most unlikely to have great faith and understanding, and he lauded them and praised them for it. The scriptures are for all of God's people. So today, I want to walk you through some basic guidelines for getting the most out of your reading of God's Word. Guidelines laid down by my favorite pastor of all time, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who never went to seminary and was never formally ordained, and who knew the Scriptures and the Christ of Scripture better than I think I ever will in this lifetime. And I've given you a handout, which is something I haven't done in a long while, where you can fill in the blanks. It's a great way to keep you awake and engaged. Some people remember things better if they write them down, and also... You can look at it again later as you are about to read God's Word and be reminded of what we talked about here this morning. So, number one, as we are reading God's Word, read God's Word with a sense of dependence. This is what Spurgeon said here. 
How often do we open the sacred book and read a chapter through, perhaps at family prayer or perhaps in our own private devotions, and having read from the first verse to the last, we shut up the book, thinking we have done something very right and very proper, and in a vague way, somehow profitable to us? Very right and very proper indeed. And yet, right and proper as the thing is, we may really have gained nothing. So it is possible to have the words just stacked on top of each other and not gain anything. What is missing there? The sense of dependence on God and His Spirit. Now you know, if you've been attending here long, that I'm a big proponent of you having good resources, having a a good study Bible or two. If you're doing a study of a book of the Bible, having a couple good commentaries that are solid, all that stuff, but far more valuable than any of these tools, concordances, lexicons, whatever you might name, is to have the actual author of a work giving you insight as to what the words mean. This is what I meant by this. My my wife, Erin, her education was in English. And I remember a few times she had some classes. It was in the 90s. It was in the heyday of this thing called reader hermeneutic, where she would get really frustrated because a given professor here or there would be so bought into this idea that it doesn't matter what the, the actual author meant to say. That's irrelevant. Authorial intent. Now we find the meaning in what we see in it. In the community, now we find the meaning in our own hang-ups, our own deconstruction, our own cultural biases, our preoccupations. Remember when Bill and Ted went back in time to help with their their school project and they grabbed all the people that they were going to be doing a report on and they were like, here are the actual people And and they aced it? That wouldn't have helped in those classes. Because they would have been like, okay, that's Emily Dickinson, but we don't care what she has to say. What do we have to say about what she had to say? Now, we can read the Bible that way as well, and many people do. And you've heard me rail and rail against the idea of reading the Scriptures out of context. And yes, when it comes to the human authors of Scripture, we want to look at their context, what was happening, why they were writing, who they were writing to, absolutely all of that. But we also believe that this is God breathed, and so there's another author at work, and that is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit partnered with the humans in writing this, he then can tell us what he meant, and the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. And as Baptists, we have always emphasized one aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us, which is illumination, shining light on what God's Word means and what it means to each of us. Jesus promised that. John 14, he said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. We need to have a dependence on the Spirit guiding us in our reading of God's Word. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul tells us the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's speaking in terms of covenant there, but the same is true of Scripture. If we are just reading the letter and we're just processing it with our noodle... I see one of two possible outcomes. Yeah, you understand, sure, but as you're understanding, are you becoming more and more despairing because you go, I can't do any of this stuff. I just fall short all the time. Are you becoming maybe more and more confident in the flesh, which is even worse, going, I think I do keep most of this stuff pretty well. If that's how we are reading it, by the letter, that leads to death. But if we are going to find life in these pages, it will be by the Spirit. And so... Begin with prayer. That's how we can read with a sense of dependence. 
Start off by beginning with prayer. We're going to talk more about prayer itself a little later. We're also going to talk about it exclusively on the next Communion Sunday. We'll talk similarly to prayer as we are to Scripture uh, this morning. But I think while most people view Bible reading and prayer as kind of a, a package deal, like a pair, like, yeah, I took some time this morning for Bible reading and prayer. They go together. Few people seem to understand the value of praying specifically as they open the Bible that God will reveal to them the truth within it, that he'll open their eyes and their minds to his eternal truth and shine his light on the relevance to their lives. There is on the other side of these notes a prayer from Spurgeon himself. And I am going to tuck this, it's on cardstock, so it's just ready to go, into my Bible. And if you're reading the Bible with me anytime in the next few months, we're going to start by reading this prayer. O living Christ, make this a living word to me. Thy word is life, but not without the Holy Spirit. I may know this book of thine from beginning to end and repeat it all from Genesis to Revelation, and yet it may be a dead book, and I may be a dead soul. But Lord, be present here. Then will I look up from the book to the Lord, from the precept to him who fulfilled it, from the law to him who honored it, from the threatening to him who has borne it for me, and from the promise to him in whom it is yes and amen. What a prayer and what a sense of dependence. Secondly, read the word in a spirit of meditation. And I don't mean like, oh, meditation, where you try to clear your mind, but the exact opposite of that, where you fill your mind with God's word, and then you meditate on that, you process that, you work through that. Like what we read about in Psalm 119, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I think the best way to do this, to accomplish this in your devotional reading of the scripture is to slow down. Slow down. People have a tendency to try and read quick, to try and read a lot, to try and get it done. Check that box. It's the first Sunday in February. I assume that there are still some people who are trying to keep up with their New Year's resolution to read through the Bible in a year or to make up for having fallen already behind on their New Year's resolution to read the Bible in a year. And I think the best thing that can happen to your read of the Bible in a year plan is for you to fall behind and keep reading anyway. And stop saying, I've got to read this much each day in order to make it count. You ever find it so hard to remember any of it when you're reading big, big chunks of the Bible? I only have to read four chapters in Matthew, and then two in uh, Minor Prophets, and then a Psalm. And later on in the day, you go, oh, I remember there was so much good stuff, and I read it, and I said, I really need this, but I don't remember what it was. Hey, you're filling your mind so full. If you hit something that makes you stop and think, here's a wacky idea. Stop and think. Think on it. Meditate on it all day. Look at it from every angle. Write it down. Pull it out from time to time and think on it. There's more truth in that verse or in that little phrase than you could extract in a thousand years of studying it. Giving it a day is the least that we can do. When I can't sleep at night, in fact, this is every night because I so often can't sleep, I listen to these things called sleep stories on an app on my phone. And, and they're boring, and the guy gets sleepier and sleepier as he reads them, and it makes you kind of drift off. But there was one that, like, kept me awake because I was interested in it. Now, it, it was done well. It was Stephen Fry, and he was talking about lavender. 
And, and he starts by just describing how nice it is to walk through the fields of lavender and smell and, and how it has kind of a drowsy effect on you. Then he gets into the boring background and facts to help make you even sleepier. He starts talking about how it first comes from Asia and Persia, how the word lavender comes the, the Latin word that means to wash and, and, and why and all this stuff. And then when you're nearing the end, he starts describing the process of taking the actual flower and getting the oil out of it that can be used for all these different things, you know, uh, essential oils and all this are very popular right now. And how it's done is they take the flower and they put it in a, a flask of some kind and then they, they boil water underneath it. And there's holes for the water to go up through and it goes through the flower. And as it goes, it takes some of the oil with it. And so now lighter than air, the steam goes up, hits a water-cooled coil where it condenses, that water is all gathered, and then when they fill up a vat with that water, they cover it up, and they have to wait and wait and wait for the oil to kind of come to the top. Then they open it up, and they skim that off the top, and then they've got the lavender oil that can be used for all the different things that lavender can be used for. And I wonder if perhaps that is an illustration for our reading of God's Word. Yes, there perhaps is a time just to open the Word and just read like you're walking through the fields of lavender going, oh, this feels nice. This Isn't this nice? And then you walk out the other side and that's it. But our, our reading of God's Word for our sustenance and for our, our being strengthened in the faith ought to be a lot more like gathering it together and bringing it with us and saying, God, I need you to extract from this what can be applied, the balm that can be applied to me, to my soul, to my life. Don't chew too quick and swallow too quick. And you know when you do that, when you eat too quickly without adequately chewing, you don't actually digest the food nearly as well. You don't get the full nutritional benefit of your food. Plus, you get, according to WebMD, gas. <laughs> Speaking of gas, when you fill up your car, you could top it off. You know, they say not to do that. It's bad for the environment. But if you topped it off so that there was not another drop that could fit in there. So, all right, I filled my car up with gas. Does you no good unless you actually get behind the wheel, turn the key, start the engine, and begin to propel yourself forward by this fuel. If you just collect it, it does you no good. Take the time to meditate on God's word. In Psalm 1, we read, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Joshua 1, we read, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. They were going into a conquest, about to get a bunch of fields and uh, you know, cities and, and, and buildings and things. We're promised that we will have spiritual wealth if we do this. We will, we will have life more abundant in Christ. And you might be thinking, well, it's easy for you to say, Pastor. Part of the job that we pay you for is studying God's Word. So you've got the time. Right? I've got other stuff to do. I've got a job that's very much not God's Word related, and I've got to focus on that. I've got my kids. I'm busy. I've got stuff to do. I can't be meditating on God's Word all day. And I have to just agree and say, yeah, it's a sweet deal to be able to open God's Word and say, I can read this for 45 minutes to an hour, and I'm working. But all the same, you need to find the time to meditate on God's Word. If you can, do it while you work. Read it in the morning and meditate on it throughout the day. 
most jobs have aspects of them where you do it kind of on automatic, where you're not having to focus completely and your mind can wander a bit. And you might let it wander uh, to, to things that make no difference. You might let it wander to worries and different things. Or you could focus on God's word for a time. Or even, well, you eat your lunch or whatever. L- listen to the words of Deuteronomy 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. When you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as signs on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Yes, there is an aspect of that that is symbolic, but the symbolism is it's always front and center here. Whenever I can, getting up, lying down, walking down the street, whenever the opportunity arises, I am thinking about and meditating on these words. I was reading about Harriet Tubman this past week. You know, absolute hero, Harriet Tubman, who was born into slavery, escaped from her vicious, murderous, quote-unquote, owner at 29 or something, and then set about helping many, many other people escape from slavery. She then, during the Civil War, worked as a double agent for the North, scouting things out and, and always in peril. There was a price on her head, everyone out to get her all the time, Seriously, she's not on any of our money yet, really, but more like relevant here, you think you have a stressful job and you're busy, and yet we read about her faith in Christ and how she would continually be reading, memorizing, and meditating on God's word. She, and she talks about how she'd get up in the morning and read, and it would stick with her. And when she started to flag and think, why am I doing, what am I doing, I'm going to get killed, I'm going to get... She would remember scriptures. God would bring them to her heart and her head more and more. For most Christians today, we might think to ourselves, well, I don't have any time. But if we just replaced the swiping slack-jawed at our smartphones with meditating on God's word, we'd find our spiritual lives deepening immediately and significantly. Productivity expert named Charles Chu found that the average American spends 608 hours on social media every year. The average American. In that amount of time, you could read 125 books. And he found that, in addition, people watch 1,600 hours of television. This is a few years ago. It's probably flip-flopped now. But if you added those together, that was 2,250 hours total, during which you could read 450 books or read the Bible through 10 times if you read it real quickly, which I've told you not to. We've got the time. What are we choosing to spend the time we've got on? That's the question. Or perhaps you don't have a smartphone and you're feeling smug about that. But it's that book of Sudoku puzzles or a 24-hour cable news addiction that is taking up your time? Is that sort of thing expanding like a gas to fill in every spare moment? We, we all need, yes, to relax and decompress. We don't want to fill every moment of our day with, oh, I should be reading the Bible. i got to feel guilty about that, obviously. But would you be better off to take even half of that time spent on frivolous things and commit it to reading and meditating on Scripture? No, I'm really asking. Yes, obviously. In fact, replacing any stress-inducing, like doom-scrolling or channel-flipping or political newsletter obsession or hand-wringing with reading God's Word and focusing on the promises, the encouragement, the hope that we find in there, that has the potential to vastly change our lives, our attitudes, even our health for the better. Stress is a killer, is it not? 
People sitting there going, oh, I'm all the time walking around going, I'm so worried about the direction where this world is going. Where, Where is this world going? I can tell you the answer right here, ultimately, and it's good news, my friend. Find hope and comfort in God's Word. Thirdly, read with the intention of applying God's Word. Spurgeon's advice is, do with the Bible as the sick man does with the doctor's prescription. Follow it by personally doing what it bids you. Some of us do with the Bible what we do with the doctor's prescription that we lose weight or eat more bran or something, though. Eh. Own it. it. It is yours. This is my Bible, right? There's a guy that says, hold it up, say this is my Bible. Well, that means all of it applies, not just the stuff that makes me feel good inside. Martin Luther said all vital religion is in the personal and possessive pronouns. Before we can truly apply God's word to ourselves, we have to see it as applying to us. Those pronouns that are in there, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. To stop and go, wait a minute, I'm the thee there. When we read, flee ye from the love of money, we go, hold on, I'm the ye in that sentence. Or you, or whatever, you know, depending on what version you're reading. But these are not words for other people. I'll tell you what, the other side of the coin of having a job that involves studying God's Word is it's very easy to continually be thinking about, oh, yeah, this would be good for this class or a sermon. This is what God's people at large needs, and it becomes easy, even when you're in God's Word, to fail to apply it to myself and be fed myself by it. And I know that all pastors that I'm uh, close with have that same struggle. The last thing a preacher ever wants to hear when people are on the way out is a good sermon, pastor. I wish so-and-so was here to hear it. Don't be that guy. Were you here to hear it? (laughs) Same thing is true of Scripture. If we read God's Word and find ourselves going, oh, so-and-so really needs this. Yeah, you need it. I need it. And we're the ones reading it. Now, maybe after I've applied it to myself, I can share it with someone else, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. James 1.22, we're, we're commanded, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If we just read it and we don't do it, we're deceiving ourselves. And you're wasting the time that you're spending reading it. How many Sudoku puzzles could you get done in that amount of time? At least then you've got something to show for it. Now, we've seen this theme during the past few weeks looking at Ephesians. That we need to apply God's word in order for it to bring us maturity. But the fact is that there's also an element where we need to apply God's word for the sake of our witness to others. It's a cliche, yeah, but you are, in some sense, the only Bible a lot of people will ever read unless they come to faith. Your life will be the message to them. Do they see God's truth in your life? Fourth, read God's word prayerfully. Hey, you already did that one. Well, not really. Not only do we want to ask God to open our eyes before we open the pages, but we want to interact with his word. Remember when everything was interactive? I remember uh, interactive CD-ROMs were all over the place. And I bought one. It was a Bible thing called Illumina. And I still have it on my computer 17 years later. That's who I am. But uh, Illumina was an interactive Bible where you could go into virtual reality and like go around Jerusalem and, and you could uh, watch videos of David killing Goliath and all this stuff. It was very cool. But our Bible itself, print on paper, ought to be interactive insofar as we are praying God's word back to him. 
praying God's promises back to him. We had a couple of years of Wednesday night classes. We called it School of Prayer from uh, Andrew Murray's With Christ in the School of Prayer about this very idea, praying God's word back to him. We ought to pray at the beginning, then open and read, and then pray, and then read, and then pray. Some have called this conversational. And this, by the way, is what Harriet Tubman did. She said that everything that she was learning and memorizing and meditating on, she'd turn into a prayer back to God and always was praying. She would wash her face and say, Lord, wash me and make me clean. She'd take the towel and wipe off her face and say, Lord, wipe away anything in me that, I, that shouldn't be there. And she was constantly taking what she was reading and she was praying while she was going about her life. Pray God's word back to God. Listen, you're reading, you're meditating on, you're applying, and you are doing it all prayerfully. Spurgeon said, a text of scripture is like a treasure chest which is locked, and prayer is the key to open it. And then we get God's treasure. And not like the big hair religious channel that says the treasure is a Learjet, and you look beautiful and have a white smile and perfect health. No, it's life in Christ. Fifthly, read God's word like a Berean. You may not remember, you may not have been with us when we did a study through the whole book of Acts. The Bereans were those we read about in Acts 17, when it says the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Flipping through the Bible to see if what they were taught is what it says. The gravest error in the church today, I believe, is the common practice of bending scripture around our own personal and cultural beliefs instead of the other way around. That's why we have so many people claiming to be Christians, saying diametrically opposed things, teaching diametrically opposed doctrines. And you hear people, even in solid Christian churches and, and, and mature believers, falling into the trap of saying things like, huh, it seems to say this, but certainly God couldn't mean X or Y, so it must mean something else. Now, how do we... Couldn't mean? Says who? Our culture? Our wicked, morally bankrupt, idolatrous, backwards culture that cancels people and celebrates fornication and death and rebellion? Oh yeah, God would never want to rock that boat. Certainly not. Also, God's word is totally bound by this brief flash-in-the-pan moment, this place in time where I happen to be while I'm reading it. He's like, well, I got to change it for you, of course. He's going to be polite. God's not bound by that. That's like, that's again the reader hermeneutic. The idea I've got to, whatever it means is only what it means now. No, God's word means the same thing today as it did a thousand years ago. Hopefully we as the church are getting closer to the truth and seeing some of where we've fallen short. But we have to, we have to get out of this whole trap of, oh, God is bound by what our culture says in the moment. If anything, if, our, if we're reading the Bible and finding that God agrees with what we hear the world saying all the time and the morals pushed on us by the world, we have to stop and say, I think I'm doing this thing wrong. Because Jesus says his kingdom is going to be upside down, backwards, inside out from what we see in the world around us. Spurgeon even says in teaching on this, if you have even a doctrine of God in mind, Find out the text or texts which prove it. If there should happen to be other texts which seem to point the other way, do not cut and pare any of them down, but accept all and wait until the Spirit reveals wherein they really agree. Scripture is not to fit your opinions, but your opinions to conform to the blessed word. In our men's group study last Sunday night, uh, we, we were reading about the woman at the well. 
We're going through the Gospel of John. And in that reading, we came to where she says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped God on this mountain, and you Jews worship him on Mount Zion. So, and Jesus didn't engage her because she was trying to distract him from what he was really doing, but it would have been very easy to engage and to say, listen, that's no reason to do anything. Your fathers did this? Okay. Is it what God's word says? And today, half the church seems to be in this boat of, well, our spiritual ancestors did this and taught that and believed these things, and so we must believe them and do them and teach them. And then the other half seems to be saying, well, our ancestors did this and taught this and believed that, and they were all awful, we know, so we have to go the exact opposite direction. Forget all that. Search the scriptures. Read and meditate and pray and weigh what you've been taught and what you believe against them. In that passage that we heard earlier from Matthew 12, Jesus says, have you not read? Or have you not read in the law? So he's saying, don't you know this common story about David? And don't you know this aspect of the law? And then he says, and if you had known what this means. Have you not read? Have you not read? If you had known what this means. He's talking to people who have read. Okay, he's talking to people who are experts in the law. They've read it, but they haven't known what it means because they've just gone with what they've been taught. They haven't had that Berean mindset. And I've seen the scriptures twisted into obscene pretzel shapes where they, they seem to even say the opposite of what they clearly teach when someone gets done with them. And it seems to me that it's happening more and more with every passing year, even within the church visible. Well, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And I think it's no coincidence then that it's to Thessalonica that Paul writes, test everything, hold fast what is good. Test everything, hold fast what is good. Finally, sixthly, don't just read God's word. Share it. I usually cringe at the use of the word share in a religious context. You've probably heard me before say, you share a sandwich, you proclaim the gospel. But here I'm saying share it not as a cutesy way to avoid saying preach, but very intentionally. I'm saying share it because in Spurgeon's sermon from 150 years ago that I'm pretty much harvesting and turning into a meal for you this morning, he says, read and tell out. And no one talks like that, and it's kind of confusing. So read and share it. If you're truly following Jesus, the point is you'll be generous with God's word. You won't be stingy. Last week, I told you about my ugly feet. And then, this past week, a few of us were reading Romans together and got to this passage. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them. I thought, oh, maybe they are beautiful. I do preach the gospel. I've been sent. We've got to bring the good news. Shepherds did this in Luke chapter 2. We read, they saw that these things had taken place, and they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. These were not scholars. They were ordinary, everyday, blue-collar guys. But they'd had an encounter with Christ after receiving the word of God, having it revealed to them, and they could not help but tell everyone. And I'm not talking primarily here about evangelism, although that is part of it. I'm talking about sharing what you find in the scriptures with your spouse, with your children, with your struggling brother or sister in Christ. Just like God's word is not just for other people, so we don't need to apply it, it's also not just for me, so I can hoard it. 
It's meant to be a communal thing. Apply it and then share it or tell it out or whatever. I don't care what you call it. Just do it. Again, in Deuteronomy 6, I skipped the verse in there. Let me read it with the verse put back in. Those words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Meditation is great, but discussion of God's word may be even better. Yesterday, the women's Bible study met. And Aaron and I were sitting and relaxing and talking about our day. And I said, how did Bible study go? And she said, it was very good. And then she said to me, Katie had this really cool insight into this thing from Hebrews 14. And she describes to me something they talked about. And I thought, wow, this is so neat. I am benefiting from what they found in God's word. And that's exactly how this should work. We share with one another what we find in God's word. It was about five years ago that... I decided that our elders and deacons meetings were getting a little too business-like, a little too just, let's go through this uh, thing, da-da-da-da-da-da, and, and there wasn't much Jesus in it. I said, I think we need to commit to, to starting every meeting with someone leading a devotion. And I remember, this was years ago, it was different people, but a few of them went, deer in the headlights. I said, don't worry, listen. If you're really worried and nervous about that kind of thing, you can even just take, you know, something that you read in a devotion earlier in the week and just read it to us. Don't worry about that. And so we began to do it. And I noticed recently that over the ensuing years, we've gotten to the point now where nine out of ten of these things are just that. A couple paragraphs from the 30-second Bible Minute or whatever, or thought for the day emailed to me. Even I, the last time I let it, let it become kind of an afterthought for me. Oh, we've got to do this. Just part of the agenda of the meeting. But the idea was to share what God is impressing on your heart in your reading of God's word with the rest. And I'm assuming that if you're in a position of servant leadership in the church, you are committing yourself to the private reading of scripture. You'd better be. And if you're not, I'm not calling you to step down. I'm calling you to step up and get your nose into a Bible. But we ought to be sharing with one another. Let me, let me close with this rather obscure story from 2 Kings 7. The, the city of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, was being besieged by the Syrians, also called the Iranians. Their army was bigger and better, and they had fully surrounded them, and they were starving out the people of Samaria. But they were not going to buckle. They kept the door locked, and they were in it for the long haul. They had that kind of willpower. And we read about how, it's, it's told backwards, so you find out after the fact what happened, but I'll tell you at the beginning. What happened was, God causes this entire army to hear the sound of a gazillion horses and chariots coming from this direction. And they all look at each other, and the commanders say, oh no, they got word to the Hittites, and the Egyptians, and other people, and they've gotten together in a massive army that's going to wipe us out, and they ran they're dropping armor and they're leaving a trail, literally like a cartoon, leaving a trail behind them as they go, we find out later. Well, at the same time, or a little after actually, there are these lepers and they're kind of stuck because they're not allowed fully inside the city because they're unclean, but they can't really go out, so they're at the gate. And in, in the gate, they say to each other, they say, look, we, we're going to die here and it's going to be slow. We have our choices. We could go into the city all the way. Best case scenario then, we starve to death with everybody else. Or we can just walk right out of the gate toward the Syrian army and say, hey, we give up. Don't kill us. 
Maybe they'll just let us go. Maybe they'll let us skate, look at us and say, oh, poor lepers. Or if they kill us, they'll kill us quick. And that's better than starving to death too. So they do that. And they're going, white flag, surrender. Hey, anybody? Anybody? And there's nobody there. What they find are tents full of food and wine and gold and silver. And they do this at like twilight. And all night long, they're going tent to tent, eating and drinking. These are people who have been starving for a long time. And they're just, they're just enjoying it. And they're like, ooh, I want that, I want that, I want that. And then we read in verse 9 of 2 Kings 7. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. And they went in and they said, listen, not only are we no longer in mortal danger, there is more food than you could ever hope for, more wine, more wealth right outside the gate, and you're free to go get it, just like we did. These lepers, you know, we could go on about how that's a picture of being poor in spirit. They were totally dependent They had nothing of their own. They discovered something amazing, and they ate, and they were strengthened, and they were uh, even becoming wealthy. And then they shared that feast with all the other people starving in that city. Seems to me that hits every one of Spurgeon's six elements of how we ought to read the Bible. Reading God's Word with a sense of dependence. Reading God's Word prayerfully. Reading God's Word with a spirit of meditation. Reading God's Word in every way so that it will benefit both ourselves and those who we are in communion with and to do it all to the glory of God. It's not January 1. It's far enough into the year where it wouldn't even be a New Year's resolution if you decided today to commit yourself anew to the reading of God's Word. Open it up and read until you are fed. And say to God, let me chew on this and meditate on this throughout this day. Let me pray on this. You help me understand. You shine your light on this word. And you continue to make me more and more into the image of Christ using the most important of the ordinary means of grace. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and that it is life to us. And Lord, we do confess that we neglect it that there are Christians in parts of the world right now secretly holding on to just a few pages of the Bible, ready to die for it if they are discovered with it, passing around hand-copied pieces of your word, a book here, a chapter there, treasuring them. And Lord, I have 65 different Bibles on my shelf and often take it for granted. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a new desire to open your word, not just as something we have to do, not as a bunch of words we need to read to check something off a list, but as sustenance for our souls, as a way to connect with you, our creator, and as a way for you to help us become more like your son, Jesus Christ, to refine us, to strengthen us, to embolden us. Amen.